I just think that for some of the insured things that we get, I hear people say, oh, I've added my iPad to the contents insurance or I've done this, but have not even considered what their property should be insured for. You're listening to the She Renovates podcast. You're listening to She Renovates, the podcast for women who want to renovate to create an income and a life they love. Hello, hello, renovators. This episode is sponsored by a brand new training entitled How to Replace Your Income with Renovating. So it's for you if you're on a mission to go from a hobby renovator to professional renovator, to either replace a dull day job, to retire or downsize profitably, to pay off your mortgage, to help the people you love, and to have more money and more fun in your life. So it's a while since I've done one of these and I'm pretty excited about it. What I'm going to cover in this training is the process you go through. It's really three core steps to going from pretty much where you are now to a point where you have the capacity to generate income at will and you have replaced your income with renovating. Like lots of people have this as a dream, but actually haven't figured out how to get there. So that's what I'm going to be walking through in this training. I'm also going to be sharing with you my top tip for getting fast results. I have really nailed this. And what I'm seeing now is students coming out of straight out of the boot camp, going into a project and absolutely killing it. Because the alternative is going into analysis paralysis and doing nothing, which doesn't get you what you want. So I'll be talking about that. And I'm going to also be talking about my proven fix for the biggest challenge that newbie renovators have. We all know what that is. It's a missing ingredient. So I'm going to be talking about how we approach the joint venture process. So I've been working on this for probably almost 10 years. I've done a lot of joint ventures, can't remember really how many. They've gone from being sometimes a bit painful to having a beautifully elegant process. So I'll share that with you. And also the part that we play in that. This is our entry level training to our boot camp. Of course, there's no obligation to join the boot camp, but in order for you to really understand what's involved, if this is something that's on your agenda, this is a really good way for you to get those distinctions. The other thing I should let you know is it is a meeting and not a webinar. And the difference is that with a meeting, you can actually see the people that you are communicating with. You can talk and be heard. I cannot stand the facelessness of webinars. We've outlawed them in the School of Renovating and because I really love to get up close and personal, so that's the way we roll. So if you would like to join, you can come over to www.theschoolofrenovating.com forward slash the leap. And if you can't remember that, you'll find it in the show notes. So let's get into the episode. 
Welcome, Marty, and thank you for joining me today. As I said, I feel like I'm in the presence of quantity surveying royalty. I'm sure you are very proud of your efforts. And we met probably six or seven years ago, I think it would have been, when I first started my business. And I have to say, yes, was very green and you were very gracious. So we've both come a long way. So we're going to be talking about the relevance of a quantity surveyor for renovators. And I'm just wondering whether you would mind just telling everyone a little bit about yourself. Yeah, sure. I co-founded with my business partner, Mike, back in 2011, MCG Quantity Surveyors. We saw a need that the industry was really after expertise and a client-focused service consultant. We would been working for a bigger company, like a lot of consulting firms become a little transactional just with size. And, and that's not necessarily a negative of that firm, but it's just more of a culture of big consulting firms tend to lose sight of that sort of at the coalface client focused service. So that's where that the sort of original idea came from and it's manifested into us now being a, a nationwide service with various offices. We're you know, very humble to say we started from a bedroom and now I've got seven offices. So it's it's been a really good journey. In 2018, we got on the Australian Financial Review's fastest 100 growing companies. And then this morning, we were just announced as 2021's Client Choice Awards for Quantity Surveying, the uh, number one Quantity Surveying company in the country. So it's something that those little things are nice little pats on the back, but I think it's more of a, a recognition that you're heading down the right track. Yeah, that's our general sort of wrap up. Great. Yeah, I'd say that's a massive pat on the back. Yeah. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you for that. The fastest 100s and it's amazing. So congratulations on that. And the thing that I love is the fact that you do have seven offices because a lot of our audience is Australia-wide. It's really good that you service areas other than Sydney. Yeah, and that's property investing. We're seeing it changing. We did a, a study of the last sort of thousand jobs that we'd worked on and and worked out where the client lived because their address is in the report and where the address of that investment property is. And it's quite interesting to see the distance that people now live from investment properties and renovation type jobs because of the rise of buyers agents and different sort of national presences of those sort of things that people aren't necessarily buying a property around the corner anymore. No, they're not. And so do you mind just letting me know where those offices are? What Uh, cities they're in? Yeah, our offices are are in the main sort of metropolitan areas and from those we service out into the regional areas of that state. So um, saying from the north coming down, we've got Brisbane, Newcastle, uh, Sydney, Canberra, Melbourne, Adelaide, Perth. Great. Excellent. Okay. How do you become a quantity surveyor? What's the path? Yeah, the path is, there are a couple of different degrees that you can do. So the main institute that sort of heads up that is the Australian Institute of Quantity Surveyors, which I'm a a council member for the New South Wales chapter, and I'm a fellow of the Australian Institute of Quantity Surveyors. That's really the institute and the sort of the governing body of that. To become a quantity surveyor, there's a few different degrees you can do that have recognition status of that, and that are the main one is the Bachelor of Construction Management. So it is a a four-year degree typically and from that it's very much a hands-on 
basis outside of your degree. So you, know, you can be building, working with a building company as an estimator, and then to sit the, the panel to become a qualified or certified quantity surveyor, you, you need to be able to hit off those core competencies of cost estimation right through to feasibility. Yeah, brilliant. And you came to it through your trade? Yeah, so I went from school to a trade, carpentry, and from there I went to uni, did my degree, and then progressed in through working with a quantity surveying company at the time and then starting MCG. Yeah, great. And so what are some of the situations where we as renovators might need a quantity surveyor? So we'll talk about depreciation reports in a minute, but what other offerings do you have that a renovator might be interested in? There's two parts to renovating. You can be a person who wants to renovate because this is just the house I want to live in. Within reason, you're quite happy to overcapitalise. So budget isn't necessarily that important to you. Now, that might be a smaller fraction of the people who are doing renovation. I would think more than it should be in that regard that I think every sort of renovation you do, you should have some return on investment from a budgetary sort of part. So at the very start, at at a conceptual stage, when you're maybe talking to an architect or a draftsman or interior designer, is putting some numbers around those works. And that would be when I would be talking to a quantity surveyor. So our initial step could be, I'm thinking about buying this property. I'm thinking about doing this as a renovation. What am I in for? And that may be a catalyst of whether you even put an option on that property to purchase or even go to an auction to see what you're willing to buy it for, knowing that what you want to do to it is going to cost X amount. Uh, And then that would go right through to the detail stage of actually costing up the actual scope uh, because it's been quite defined that you're able to then use that estimate to compare builders pricing or subcontractor pricing that's coming in uh, so that you've got some sort of budgetary allowance right through to when the services are done assessing defects or variations. Great. So if someone came to you with, look, so is this pure, obviously it's purely for structural renovations? Yep. Uh, All I'm saying, obviously. Yeah, no, I guess not necessarily. Depending on your house, if you're going through and repainting and redoing lights and redoing floors and the like, you could still be spending quite a lot of money on your property. And being able to ascertain what, say, pulling up the carpet and polishing the floorboards should cost when you're going to be getting prices in from various trades would certainly be worthwhile. You don't want to be caught out in that you're getting a price from a trade that is giving you a price purely dependent on their workload as opposed to what it should cost. Oh, yeah. Seriously, that's going on at the moment. Yeah. And so that's really interesting because one of the things, like I was saying to you, I'm looking, uh, negotiating or on a property purchase this morning and it's in Newcastle and I have never done a project in Newcastle and so there are quite challenging things about this property like it needs some work on the foundations and the crawl space between the house and the ground is very limited and a few other things like that I was talking to the buyer's agent and I said to her that I've allowed about 20 grand for that for worst case scenario and she said oh no I don't think you'll need to allow that much and then she went to the builder and found actually yes probably would be 20,000 but I would feel a lot more comfortable if I actually had a quantity surveyor's opinion so how do you adjust for location because I know that building costs there are different to what they are here and yeah go on yeah so there are indices so there are what something will cost in Sydney in Newcastle maybe five percent dearer but then 
there's the regional indices on say a building price index and that's based on scarcity of materials and labor so what it would cost to say build in sydney would be vastly different at say broken hill because there's less competition there might not even be a concrete plant there they might have to ship a lot of material out there depending on the build so it might be that you could do a weather clad house out there fairly uh, price competitive because of the nature of the builders are used to building in that and material is around but you may not be able to build a Hebel house in the same cost you could in, say, Dubbo, because there are no people out there and you've got to pay for transportation or tradesmen to stay over. So there are certainly instances of that. And I mean, we get that even in just in Sydney. So not only is there regional, it always comes down to competition. We've just done an extensive house in Clontarf. Now, the, the marble floors they were putting down were two metres by one metre slabs. Now, that we weren't able to get pricing from the general tiling fraternity because a a lot of tilers wouldn't lay a tile that big or want to work with a tile that big. They didn't have machines that could cut them and, and do all those sort of things economically and weren't interested. And in some cases, they may say they're interested, but their price that they were giving was showing that they weren't really interested in it or able to do it. So suddenly we were paying or getting prices in fairly high because there was just no competition to do it. So certainly you do have the regional indices, which will drive up price uh, regards on, you know, competition and scarcity and the like, and also workloads. So I can remember doing works as a carpenter in the late 1990s in the Eastern suburbs of Sydney. And it was just after some big hailstorms hit the area and you just could not buy a tarp in town to put over your roof and tiling prices were through the roof. So you'll find after certain sort of weather events, cyclones in the north or whatever it might be, you just can't get tradespeople. The tradespeople will just go, I've got, I'm booked out now for nine months. If you really need to fit me in, you're going to pay for it. And Mm. you then need to weigh that up. We've had jobs where, say, in Melbourne, there's been an influx in certain suburbs and someone will say to me, we've costed this up at a million dollars. The cheapest quote I can get is 1.3 million. Are you out? And you go, we did your last job and we're on the money and it was the exact same build. So you can start to see that unless you can get people and you need two people, like at auction, if you want to sell your place at auction, you need two bidders to drive it up. The same is if you're trying to get a price from a subcontractor, you need a couple of people to help drive the price down. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so that's really good. So your local officers have that local knowledge that you pull into that task. The other thing I want to ask you, as well as the recorded index that you use, how much time do you need to do that and roughly what does it cost? And I know that's a variable thing, but if you could just give us an idea that would be really useful. Yeah, so if you're looking at a feasibility that it's pretty high level drawings, and when I say high level, there are some people that come to us with a sketch on the back of a serviette because A, they haven't purchased something yet or they haven't really committed to the project of going and spending 10 grand with an architect. So they're trying to get a, a bit of a feel for it. Now, in that instance, you know, for us to do up a cost plan, which we're able to do fairly detailed because we'll go to site and measure it up and we'll have that conversation with the client. That might be something that's around the 600 to to $1,000 mark. Now, if you're then, you've progressed a little bit further and that might be a three, five day turnaround depending on access of sites. If we then jump forward to, you've now gone to a draftsman or an architect and you've got some finishes and structural sort of elements 
depicted on the plans and it's a little bit more robust, we're able to then count taps and number of toilets and toilet roll holders and exact square metres of wall tiling. Now, that's something that's going to be more in the vicinity of, say, the $1,500 to $2,000 mark based on going through all the information and costing that up. And that's something similar to, you know, bills of quantities that people would have heard about, that it's yeah. a detailed estimate that they can then compare individual trades. And that would, we usually quote about the 10 working days uh, for that service and usually come in much quicker if required. Okay, great. That's good. And of course, that's actually, that's how we connected, reconnected, I should say, is because I asked you to do something, do that on our renovation at home. Yeah. Yeah. I do have people in my family who could do it, but I'd waited a few weeks and thought this isn't going to happen. So better do something about it. Yeah. And look, I think that's a really nice way of actually summing that up because time is money. Now, when you're renovating a property, let's take the consulting out of it. If you're renovating it so it's going to be rented out and it's going to take nine months or you're going to wait around for a year because of trades that aren't getting back to you, you're losing rent. So time is money. And the other thing is if you're not an expert in it, if it's going to take you a week, it may far be a better option to get someone else to do it in a day and you're a week down the road. I absolutely agree. When I saw the the proposal, $600, I thought, seriously, I don't know why I waited so long to yeah. so it's great value. Okay, the next thing is to talk about depreciation. Yeah. Now, there were big changes in the laws a couple of years ago. Yeah. As renovators, if we're renovating our own investment properties, we do still have the opportunity to depreciate plant and equipment. Yes, How does that work? Are depreciation reports still valid? Yeah, absolutely they are. The big thing about depreciation, the big sort of changes they made in regards to plant and equipment were that if you're putting in the plant and equipment item, so if you've got an existing property and you buy it and it already has a kitchen renovation done to it and you're now the new purchaser, you aren't able to claim that plant and equipment. It has already been utilised by the previous owner. So from a plant and equipment point of view, it has to be something that you've done yourself. So if you're looking at buying a property and renovating it, you're going to be getting the plant and equipment. Yeah, exactly. That was the big change. So really prior to that, if a previous owner had put something in and that item still hadn't got to the end of its effective life, you inherited the ability to claim that remainder. That's now gone. Yeah, exactly. So there is still some opportunity if you're buying in a company name, is that correct? Yeah, I mean, there are certain sort of changes. It would depend on how you're buying it and with your accountant. There are also different things where if you've actually purchased it pre the 2017 date, there is a grandfathering part to that, but it needs to have been rented before that. So there are still some sort of tweaks, but the general idea of it is that if you're buying something now and you're going to be renovating it and it had already been installed by a previous person, it it would be gone. Hmm. Yeah. Excellent. So what does a renovator need to present you with in order to get that depreciation report done? Do you need receipts? How is that? um, Yeah, if they've got the receipts, absolutely. In the first instance, we always say to people, if you're planning on doing a renovation, let's get some good photos before you even start ripping stuff out because there could be something in there that we can utilise for you. And, And when you've done your renovation, the ATO will believe that it's fair and reasonable that you would have receipts. Now, in, in the event that it is a, a structural thing, like a new roof went on and by the previous owner, you're not going to have a receipt. So therefore, as a quantity surveyor, 
we would need to estimate that. But if you're doing works to your property, it's fair and reasonable that you'd have that receipt. If you don't, in the absence of you don't, and that was in a shoebox that got wet in a storage facility, we will estimate that. So in the essence of, and especially, I think where it's really important is if you're doing a renovation where you're having the, the property vacated and you're going to do it within two months, that time frame is much the same. But if you're going to do a renovation of a property over a period of time is really important. For argument's sake, if you're depreciating the value of blinds that you've put in January and it has an effective life for a certain period of time, if you've only just put those in now and not two years ago, you want to know the date that you can claim them from and maximise that. So you don't want to be chucking that price in with the general renovation you did previously. So that's why we're asking about those dates and those invoices because we're trying to maximise your value you can get out of that asset. Excellent. Yeah, that makes sense. And when you come and do a depreciation report, so the other thing is so that you do need to actually inspect the property. Yeah. And there are some sort of competitors that would say you don't need to inspect it. I've heard things like we've got software that can estimate it. The age-old argument has always been that there's no software in the country or the world that can work out what you've got in your property. They don't know what lounge you've got in there or how many knives and forks you've got if you've service one that you're renting out with that. So at the end of the day, we're also going to notice things that you may not. So it might be that you've bought this property and you've done a bit of a renovation. And when we go out there, we actually go, well, hang on a minute, this property was renovated a couple of years ago. We can tell because the skirting's different in bedroom one to bedroom four. Or when we're outside, we can see a different fascia or a different gutter. We know this has had a new roof at some point. And we'll go through and check DAs and do our research on that's money that you can be claiming that you may have just been none the wiser for. Exactly. So I guess that would come under the capital, what's yeah. called capital work? Or? Yeah. So that would be because it's structural, it's not part part of the plant yeah. and equipment. It would be written off at 2.5% of its value. Yeah. Because it's written off over 40 years instead. Correct. Of yeah. Oh, that's really useful information. And what's the situation with scrapping schedules now? Yeah. So there has been some changes to that. I must say, Mike of our offices is the absolute resident guru on scrapping and the tax depreciation. The most important thing is that if you're pulling something out, so you're scrapping an object um, or an item from a property, so you've bought a property and you're renovating it, so you're gutting it, there may be residual value in that item. So the carpet that you're pulling out or whatever it might be. So it is best to keep a check and a balance of what that is and what you're pulling out. And that goes back to my first comment that if you are going to be doing a renovation, let us know what you're planning on doing and we can get some photos or understand what you're doing and we can guide you on, hang on, there's going to be some value in that. There may not be some value left in it, but for the sort of effort of a phone call and a quick chat, it it could be thousands in your pocket. Yeah. And the distinction with scrapping schedules is that the, the property needs to be intended to be offered for rent. Yes. So the where the, the sort of fine line or the grey line, if you will, on that is that the idea of scrapping doesn't apply to someone that is buying a property to demolish or to renovate, but it might be that you had bought it and it's been rented and you've had it rented for some time and you're now looking at upgrading or doing a renovation, there may be some residual value in there. But if you're purely buying something because you're gutting it next week or demolishing the whole building next week, that's where it 
we just need to look at the nuances around how that's being done as to whether the scrapping applies to you or not. And so what happens, let's say you finish the renovation and you put it up for lease and it remains vacant. Let's say it's towards the end of the financial year and it remains vacant for some time, you don't get a tenant. Can you still claim that scrapping schedule? Yeah. And the other important, well, the depreciation, even more importantly, that you're able to, as long as the property is available for rent. So if you've got it advertised and it's available for rent and you're just unable to get a tenant, you're still still the assets appreciating in in that time space. But if it's that you have finished it and you decide you want to go away for a while and just lock it up, there would be an argument to say that's not actually available for rent. But if you're trying to get a tenant in and it's advertised and you just haven't been able to find the right person or whatever it may be, you're still able to claim that depreciation. Yeah, I think that's a worthy distinction. Now, the other day, I I heard you on the Elephant in the Room podcast. Oh, yes. Yep. And you it was just per chance, actually. I do listen to it, but not that often. And that you were talking about valuation for insurance purposes. And it yep. really brought something home to me because we live in a strata titled property that only yep. has five owners. And we always, every couple of years, get the property valued to, to determine whether we've got adequate insurance. Yep. And I looked at that after listening to you and thought that maybe it's not a value or we should be getting it should be a quantity surveyor. Because what I do is I look at it and I put, I usually think if it costs me $5,000 a square meter to replace, is that enough? That's what I do. And yep. I don't know, I don't think now having listened to that, that's adequate. No, don't take it personally, but you're probably one of 83% of Australians that are underinsured in that instance, because you could be missing out. And that's the the catch. We aren't doing it right as an insured nation. We don't really put the value into the priority of home insurance. And that's not a new thing for about 20 years of studies. We sit at about 83% of Australians are uninsured. Uh, Sorry, underinsured, the definition of that is that you have only insured the property for 90% or less of its value. The couple of the catches where people get caught out in is that they add an amount to their previous amount. So we're going to put up 5% this year. But the issue is that original price might have been underdone. If you think about your own property, if you have a block of land and you build a house on it and you go, okay, and I know it cost 400000 to build that block of that house and you insure it for that value, you're underinsured. Now, people will go, no, that's exactly what I just paid the builder. But what you're not allowing for, when you bought that block of land, it was a block of land, it was empty. So now you've got a property on it. If there's damage that and you have to rebuild, you also have the demolition cost of getting rid of the original. Now, if that's an older building that has, say, a bit of an asbestos roof, it might not just be the asbestos in the roof. If you've had a fire and that demolishes, then you've got asbestos all through the whole site. So you've now got a contaminated site. So just in the demolition, you'll be inadequate. And then you've got to look at the different things of when you're rebuilding, you've got to allow for the costs of architects and the consultants and all those things you'd need to rebuild. So we see a lot of farms underinsured purely because farmers and and family members have built sheds over time. But the reality is if they burn down, you may not be able to rebuild them maybe an age thing or you'd no longer want to be able to do it or a timing thing. You can't rebuild all 10 sheds at once. So if you're getting someone else in to now do that, you're going to be underinsured. And then we have the cost escalations issue where in time things cost more. So there's a lot of people that 
have a bit of an understanding of what their property should be, but they're not really allowing the full picture of what they should be allowing for. I'm very aware of the risks of uninsurance and I honestly believe that the way that we were going about it and with the advice of the property manager was adequate, but I'm really actually quite grateful that I now know that and can action that. Basically, you do insurance assessments. Yeah, yeah. And look, I think people need to understand that if your property is worth a million dollars and you insure it for 900000 so you insure it for 90% of its value, most insurers will pull the under insurance clause, which is that we're only now going to pay you 90% of the payout. So you're not 10% short, you're a lot less than that short. Some people will say we're keeping our premium down. The difference between, say, insuring your property for 900000 or a million I don't know, it, it might be 20 bucks. I mean, run the scenario. Like it it may not be worth what, you know, and I don't know. I I really would hate to think that while smoke is still rising off my property, I'm getting a tap on the shoulder saying, by the way, you got to chip in 200,000 or whatever. Like I just couldn't think of anything worse. Absolutely. So it's definitely something that if anyone's in this situation, they need to address. I do think sometimes you can go mad with insurance, but insuring your, your home is like 101. It's an amount. For the best part of most Australians, it's the biggest asset you're going to own. Mm. People will research the backside of a TV that's going to be going in the spare room and yet get advice from someone in a conversation over coffee about what they should insure their property for. Now, I, I just think that it's a priority. Maybe insurance had a bad name in the past or what have you, but I just think that for some of the insured things that we get, I hear people say, oh, I've added my iPad to the contents insurance or I've done this, but have not even considered what their property should be insured for. Exactly. And the, the ridiculous thing is we actually pay someone to provide evaluation. We're just paying the wrong person. So Yeah, look, read your valuation. If you've used a valuer, read the report. There'll be a disclaimer in there that says that, you know, we can't actually stand by this and you should use the services of a quantity surveyor. I've got a, a saved message on my phone that if I'm out and about with people, I show them. And it was a valuer ringing me up and leaving a voicemail saying, I've just been asked to do this report for a client. Can you please get back to me and let me know a rough cost per square metre so I can do the report? Like, oh. I was flabbergasted. I bet you love those Well, I was just flabbergasted that a valuer would even ring me up for that. Like, why not just say to the client, I can't do this for you. Use the services of, you know, someone who is actually trained to do this. We look, a, a bank doesn't use a valuer to go and assess the builder's construction cost. A builder doesn't use a valuer to determine what his tender should be. Like a builder won't use a cost calculator to work out what he should be going in on a tender yet they all use quantity surveyors. You've got to look at what are people using? Why am I using someone that no one else is? But yeah. So given our audience, Marty, is there any question I should be asking you? I think a really good question is when do you use a quantity surveyor? And we touched on it before. I think the easiest way to answer that is, is make a phone call and speak to someone because everyone's going to be different. And it, someone might be just doing a bathroom renovation. And I might go, you know what? You're going to pay me $600 to price up something that you could probably do yourself because it's only two or three trades, whatever it might be. I'm going to tell you that might not be worthwhile. But then there are bathroom renovations and then there are bathroom renovations. So mm -hmm. it's not a one shoe fits all. I think 
ring up a, a certified quantity surveyor. So make sure they're a CQS and speak to them about what you could do, how much, you know, would that be? And they will talk and I, I'll tell people, look, it's not worth it because in a lot of scenarios, it might be a client will say to me, Marty, can you please give me a rough idea of the feasibility of this renovation? And I'll say, how far away are you from, say, getting the full drawing from your architect? Oh, a week. You know what? Don't worry about it. Like, wait a week and I'll do it off those because if I do them off this now, you're only going to pay. It's not going to be, you know, relevant. So it will depend how far you're going down the road or whether you're doing it purely for feasibility because it's just a, I want to maybe see if I can get finance for it or whether you want to compare builders' pricing. I think that the first thing is open up the dialogue, speak to a quantity surveyor fairly early on, and they'll be able to help build something up for you. I mean, I've done reports for renovators where I'll export it into Excel and send it to them. And then they've got it as a working document. They then go and price something and they can change it and manipulate it. And they've got this working budget. Yeah, that's great. That's really good. So I'd love that actually. Yeah, look, I, I, because we might go in with a, a tiling rate and say, look, we're going to allow for a PC, so the supply of the tiles of $70 a square metre. And then we'll have the lay component of that or the install component of that separate. Now, if you then decide that you're out in the weekend and you see some tiles you really like, because we've given you that as a working budget, you can then go in and change the $70 per square metre to 105 because you're now going to use a decorative mosaic tile and you can adjust the lay rate if you've had a comp. And we're not charging for it, but you've been able to update it. You can see it more of a live document. It's, hang on, I'm still under budget or I've saved some money here. Where am I tracking? That's the benefit of having it costed out properly. You can then use it. I mean, you're paying for something that you should be wanting to use so that you're knowing your numbers, you're knowing where your, your money is going. It'll help with cash flow because you're able to see, okay, the next bit I've got to do on my renovation is tiling. Wow, I'm going to have, I know I'm going to be up for about 70 grand in the next couple of weeks. It'll allow you to help see where your cash flow is going. That's really, yeah, great advice. A long time ago, Mike, your business partner, told me this story about someone who engaged his neighbour to build a carport and it didn't go to plan and they had no contract be between them and it was a nightmare that in required the, the services of a quantity surveyor. I have used that story so many times trying to drum into my students the need for having contracts so I did ask you whether you had a story to bring to us today, whether it's a funny story or a scary story. Yeah, Was that look, too much of a demand? No, I've got lots of scary stories. I've, I am an expert witness, so I do a lot of reporting for the courts when there's a dispute. So I tend to see the, the good, the bad and the ugly when it comes to the industry and see where some things will be a dispute over a fence, but the next thing you know, it's multiple houses and escalate. We do see the horror stories of it. I think for me, you know, the scariest thing is probably just luck sometimes. Like I was on a building site years ago and there was a brick wall that was propped up. It was a brick facade to the front of a building that was being kept. I was there in the morning and we did an assessment of some demolition costs so that they were going to get paid. And I left the site. And then that afternoon, the wind had picked up and the brick wall blew over. It actually mm. killed, killed someone on the site. So I think that from uh, sort of the scariest thing is probably timing and, and being aware when we see the, the different things with, you know, reporting of not doing things right. But I think, you know, sometimes 
I like to put things into perspective a little bit. And just that, that was probably the scariest thing for me that you go, how close was I to that? Was that luck on your part? Yeah, oh, yeah, 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 that's right. And it, it might not have just been as simple as the wind. It could have been after that more props were taken out for whatever reason or whatever it might be. But it just shows that, like, I think, you know, in that instance, that was probably the scariest I've, I've been ever wow. on a building site. But at the time, it wasn't a concern. I wasn't worried at all. But that, that's probably the scariest thing I've, I've had happen. I think I might pull that question further up in the interview in future. Yeah, <laughs> but- yeah. Look, I think there's some real, that's the thing, there's some, like when you talk about those sort of things, I've been doing it for 20 years now. Mm. And I've seen disputes over a driveway end up where both parties are in district court and they're up to four or $500,000 in legal fees and the whole building's now being defected and, oh, this has been happening the whole time. And it really was over a payment of a driveway at the end of a job. It wasn't paid and refused to be paid. Like it just, mm. they're the scary things where, you know, stereotypically the retired male that is almost looking for something to do engrosses themselves in it but there are some pretty scary things I was looking at it from a consultant's point of view the scariest thing it's lack of paperwork it's still in this day and age the handshake agreement is still extremely prevalent and we see it with as soon as there's a dispute they'll go there's been variations all the way through and you look at the paperwork there is none or had that was asked and it fuels this legal and they're the only people getting the money out of it at the end of the day is that legal exactly. sort of sector yeah. when all you had to do was document something yeah can i just ask you on that note so often with trades we communicate a lot via text yeah and often the jobs they're not overly you're talking about budgets of between sixty and a hundred thousand. They're not massive. They're yep. predominantly cosmetic. And if something a trade, you might agree a variation via text. So I'll just say, can you confirm that back to me via text? Let's stand up in court. Yeah, well, it's a correspondence, but why not just do it as an email? That's that. At least there's a little bit more security around it. And what are you agreeing to in in terms of that variation? A text may have some photos attached to it or what have you but I think there's nothing wrong with text and email for a variation but I think that's the first step like the final step is that's then documented somehow so I might text you Bernadette would be great to catch up for coffee and you might go yeah that's great but then we formalize it with a meeting request later on okay and it might not be like it could be after the fact I might send you an email saying hey great to have caught up with you Bernadette and yes I'll get back to you on these three points or whatever it might be leading up to our podcast I think if you're going to do a text scenario for a variation follow it up with that email okay Mr Painter as per our discussion yesterday I agree that you're now going to paint the bedroom walls blue and what have you can you please just reply back that in confirmation it's better than it just being the text yeah But there's nothing wrong with texting. You may be at work. There's nothing wrong with that. And it might be that variation gets done. And at worst case, do it not long after. Don't wait till the end of the job because it's all fine. And then when it goes pear-shaped, you haven't got anything to support those extra changes. Yeah, that's really good advice. 
So thank you for your input. It's been valuable to me and I know it will be really valuable to our community. If someone wants to avail themselves of the services of MCG quantity surveyors, how do they go about that? Where can people... um... Yeah, look, they can jump on the website, which is www.mcgqs.com.au and they can find all our contact details there or put an inquiry through on there. They can get hold of me directly on an email, which we can send to you, but it's marty at mcgqs.com.au or just on the phone. We're more than happy to have that initial conversation with someone. And you know what? It may not be a job for us, meaning that it might be a light bulb moment for you. Something might get explained in a different way that now makes sense. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. So thanks very much for that, Marty. No worries. Have a good day. Okay, so that's it for today. Now, if you haven't already done so, please come over to iTunes and leave us a review. Give us any suggestions that you would like for future episodes. And we will be so grateful. We read them all and we are so appreciative of you making the effort. So thank you. This is the She Renovates podcast. To discover how to harness the power of renovating, check out theschoolofrenovating.com.